Welcome to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. Welcome to this podcast series. Um, and today is about mitral repair and also looking forward to the, the future of mitral surgery or mitral um, treatment. And so our faculty for today is Dr. Jean Rossi from New York, a very well-known uh, cardiac surgeon, also in the mitral space and minimally invasive mitral valve repair. We have Dr. Rob Smith from Dallas um, and Baylor Health and um, also very well known for a surgical robotic mitral program. And uh, Pooja Katru from St. Louis, um, welcome as well. And Pooja is also involved with the, the mitral program uh, from Metronic, the transcatheter mitral program. So therefore we have this esteemed faculty um, and can look at mitral valve surgery from all different angles. Um, and so maybe, you know, start with, um, uh, with Jean Grossi, who is probably our most senior here on the call um, about what, <laughs> what have you what have you seen, Jean, uh, changing over the years? What had had the m- most important impact on mitral valve surgery? Well, I think with respect to repair, I think everything is very finely stretched out now, and by that I mean um, that. The variation, you can't lump everybody together. Everything is very stratified. And we go everything from a person with degenerative disease, class one indications uh, on the basis of the ability to get a durable repair. So it's not the indication of the disease, it's, it's the indication of the disease plus the portended outcome and all the accessory um paraphernalia that's been developed for that in terms of mitral valve reference centers, uh, things like that, all the way through the whole spectrum of a burnt out heart with this, with functional MR and stage heart failure. So I think for me, that's the most important thing. Everything that was sort of lumped into mitral valve is now very much spread out over a spectrum. And that's excellent because I think it focuses focuses us very well on how we tailor our approach to where a particular patient and their disease fits in that spectrum. So for me, you know, when I was growing up, the mitral valve was that thing in a dark hole that, uh, you know, somebody leaned in and did something and they told you whatever they told you, you would believe. I mean, you've, you, you saw that, Rob, you know, right? You leaned your head over and you just had to believe whatever they said. Uh, I, I think... To me, in terms of where I focus, I think now we're at a point where we can do a spectacular job for training people. Uh, so, so when, when you were a resident, Gene, um, you know, it was, it was not easy to teach somebody how to do a good mitral valve repair, but did your teacher know how to do it? Uh, yes, I was very lucky because uh, Steve Colvin had done some training with Carponti and came back and was doing all the repairs with Dr. Spencer. So I had somebody who was quite excellent and there was a quite fine. We're doing four to five repairs a week. So that's, that's the thing. It has to be volume related. And that's an issue today in terms of how we train people because not every, not every institution is going to have that volume for training. And that's, and that's going to become a, that's going to become an issue because I, I think to some extent it is volume related, the quality of outcomes, particularly when you have a repair. Right. Rob, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Gene. I think the uh, the volume outcome relationship has been highlighted in mitral valve disease for some time. In fact, I think it was really one of the the standouts for this relationship. And, and we've seen that borne out in the data. And I, I think when you look at your regional experience, um, kind of with your colleagues, you can kind of tell who's doing a lot of cases and who's not. Um, I, I do think that... <clears throat> What you brought up is there's kind of two issues going on here. One, there's, I think training is going to make and has made a significant improvement because we can see now we've got all sorts of videoscopic assistance that's allowed uh, the resident surgeon to, if they're not participating at that time, to be able to to be involved from a, a thought standpoint, see what you're doing. And, but at the same time, on the other hand, we've got this now at other at some institutions of markedly reduced volume so they're not able to teach maybe all the residents at their institution and so for the person who's really interested in structural heart disease which i think is increasingly becoming kind of a niche practice within cardiac surgery it's where do you go to really get that optimal experience so that when you come out you're not a novice yeah, kind of like I was when I came out, I had experience, but I could not say I was a mitral valve repair expert coming out. I had to really get a lot of training in that. How can we get folks out of a training institution so that they're really ready to practice and make difference in patients' lives rather than practice? So the residents that now finish their training, are they better mitral valve repair surgeons than you were at the time when you finished your training? I think for the I think for the folks that have a, a keen interest in it, yes, right. Yeah, yeah and I, that's I really because do. of the teaching tools, which are have become much better. Right, and the discussions that we're able to have during a case for exactly what Gene was pointing out. It used to be looking into a dark hole, and on alternative, you know, vi- you know, inspections, you could try to see what was going on. Here, they can see the entire time what's happening. And you can criticize the entire time because you're seeing what they're doing during a case as well. So you're making on-the-fly adjustments rather than waiting for an entire move to occur before you make a criticism. Right. I, I agree. I think it's fascinating. I mean, we I had, I guess, the month, I think it was in November, I had a PGY3 putting in the first time she's putting in mitral annular stitches. She's doing it with the robot. And... I'm thinking to myself, my God, this is the first time she's put a stitch in the mitral annulus, and it's merciless what we can see, what she's doing. If she's tweaking a little too much, tearing a little bit of the tissue, everything is is just so well. And to have that, I, I always think of it like the Clint Eastwood film, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, you, there's no mysteries when you do it with the technology that we have today. You see everything good. Um, you see the good outcomes. You see the bad outcomes. And I think people who are training and watch that, everybody in the room knows what's happening and can see it. Uh, And I think that ups everybody's game to a fair amount, just the visualization. And I think definitely it improves the training. Um, But at the same time, you know, what Rob is saying is that you can't do that in your training and then go out into a low volume area. So you're going to have to, the people who want to specialize in this structural aspect of structural heart are going to have to go into a center where they'll have continued ongoing exposure. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to succeed over the long run. 
So, so Gene, that we, we discussed a lot about tactile feedback that you miss during minimally invasive surgery. Is, is that something you still miss or, or not as a trainee? I, 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 well, you know, we have different buildings, different institutions within our medical complex where we have different technologies. So everybody gets the ass, gets to do it, you know, via a, a traditional instrument versus the robotic instruments. Uh, I don't think it makes a difference because it's all about being able, at least for me, training a resident's about able to say, okay, the angle of the needle, first of all, identifying where the hinge is, where the annulus is, how are you going to put your needle in, the thought of that, you know, where the needle's going to come out. And as I say, you know, don't you believe in Euclidean geometry? You know the needle, you know the shape of the needle, you know where you're aiming it. It can't be a mystery when it comes out, not where you, not where it should be coming out. It just means you haven't integrated everything. But I think to see that and to go over that in great detail really reinforces the anatomy and the surgical techniques. Right. Yeah. So, Pujo, when, when you listen to this, how, what, what, do you, what are your observations during your training and how did you learn mitral valve surgery? I think my training sort of occurred over the time when, you know, coapt is coming out and um, all these edge to edge repairs and functional MR. So I think, you know, I was fortunate that I trained here at Washington University. Um, so we did have a high volume mitral repair center. Um, and, you know, there was these minimally invasive, not robotic, but with a camera. So we were able to see the mitral valve repair techniques. We also do a lot of open. But, you know, we really didn't put in many stitches. And when I finished about five years ago, I thought, well, I can't really do mitral valve surgery. But I think a lot of um, what I learned along the way is for us uh, during training, it's really evaluating the mitral valve that I think is the most important thing. And so if you know what you have to do, making those cuts, you know, with the supervision of the senior surgeon around is not that challenging after a while. It's really, well, here's my problem, but I don't really know how to approach it. So I think during my training, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I watched a lot of other people. Um, and then when I finished, you know, I went to a couple of courses uh, to watch live surgeries. And I think that kind of helped. But along the way, I think, you know, you're right. The vo mitral valve volume for repairs has significantly diminished with the use of the transcatheter world. And when I started, maybe the first two or three years, um, you know, we were sending the functional mitral cases to surgery. And now almost nobody goes, you know, especially if they have reduced BF and things. So I think it's definitely changed. It's definitely harder. I think I, I don't know what everyone thinks on the panel, but I think it's harder to be a mitral valve repair surgeon in this era. Um, and, and so even at our center, trying to be in uh, uh, a top mitral valve repair center, I still have my senior partners scrub for some complex mitral repairs. Um, right. Yeah. So, so is that definitely something where we will head into that there will be mitral valve repair centers and, and so less people doing mitral valve repair, Rob? What do you think? Will it be more and more concentrated? Yes. I mean, I think it already is to an extent and always somewhat has been. <laughs> um, I, I do think as with the STS star ratings, the attempt to get public reporting out there, although it's not really reached this level of uh, what you would have expected for public reporting, uh, but the consumer has access to it now. 
And I think as the next generation of folks are coming in who are who are approaching that time where they need mitral valve surgery, um, they're going to use that information to start seeking out centers that have great outcomes related to it, whether it's the STS, you know, consumer uh, reports kind of reporting method, other reporting methods, but some sort of uh, universal reporting will will start to guide patients and their families towards centers that have a lot of output uh, and with great outcomes. And so I think that's going to come. So I think a lot of it's going to be consumer driven to a degree. And then the other part's just going to be, you know, as as Gene's talked about, Pooja talked about, we talked about all this minimally invasive stuff. Well, minimally invasive surgery is resource intensive. And resource-intensive surgeries tend to occur at larger medical centers, and it's becoming the standard. And so, you know, to me, when I look at our like our system being involved at a system level, you 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 try to go, okay, well, where do we need to employ the resources so that we can affect the most lives and also transfer patients in? And this hub and spoke model of healthcare in the U.S. has really started to take root, and I think that's also going to help drive higher volumes to, to centers that are able to put the resources in uh, so they can deliver great outcomes. And then you end up kind of having, I'd say, regional competitions as opposed to kind of small individual hospital competition in the market. Yeah. It, it puts also a little bit of responsibility on your center so that mm-hmm. there's sustainability. And what I mean with that is that if, well, Rob, you're, you're far from retirement, but when once you retire, that there should be somebody else who can take over, isn't it? Or that you should have a colleague who is as good as you are. Succession planning, yeah. basically. Contingency and, planning. Oh, yes. Yeah. We're, we're very big at that. Yeah. So how do we do that, Sajid? Uh, so you evaluate people. And the question is, do you take people from within who've expressed the interest and shown the technical um, expertise? Or do you take the opportunity when you work with people who come and do fellowships uh, from wherever, and you say, you know, this is somebody who's really going to click because you have to have redundancy in a system. You have to have it. I just want to comment, Mick, add one thing that Pooja had brought up, and that was the fact that we know so well the pathophysiology of the valve uh, nowadays. And, you know, before every case, I just stand there and just, you know, watch as the echo person. Um, goes through the echo. There's no mystery as to why a valve's not working. We know so precisely nowadays with the advent of, uh, you know, excellent 3D echo, uh, you just sit there and it's just, that's that was a big part of it that we missed, you know, why was the valve leaking? I, I'll tell you, ventricular papillary muscle dysfunction. What the hell does that mean? Though I wrote many papers about it in the in the 90s. I don't I, I have no idea what it was. But now the, the precision of what of what we of our understanding of the valve, I really think, as Bush had mentioned, that's a real important thing. So and that's going to help guide us. It's going to help guide us as to what, what the best therapy for a particular patient is going to be when we have a whole range of options. Right. And maybe that brings us to the discussion about the heart team rule, the heart team, because I guess you will look with the cardiologist at, the, at that echo that you just mentioned and decide what is the best treatment for the patient. Um, and can you predict now with, an, let's say, certainty of 80, 90 percent, whether the valve is repairable or not? Gene? I, I think so. I, I think I hate to be, I hate to turn the question around, but I don't think it's a question of, of repairable. 
you know, with the with the exception of inflammatory rheumatic stuff, I think the question is what's going to give the best term, best durability for the lowest upfront impact. That's what we have. We have our team meetings. That's what we're trying to evaluate. Yeah, you could go either way, but what's going to be, you know, risk of the patient, you know, disease process, what's going to be the best long term? Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.